I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Matt Bernico, your favorite online Christian thought leader. <laughs> I'm Dean Detloff, uh, your second favorite online Christian thought follower. I don't know who your first favorite follower would be. I don't know either. Thought disciple. I don't know. I took a turn at the end. I made a big mistake. <laughs> That's okay. You know, the good thing about The Magnificast <laughs> is that every week we have a new, a new chance to introduce ourselves. So just try again next week. That's right. I've got to kick the dust off these sandals, these intro sandals, and uh, just move on to the next town. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I should say before we dive in here, they're doing a lot of construction right outside my apartment right now. So uh, <laughs> hopefully that doesn't become a problem. Um, but they've been shaking our whole building for days. But if you think about it, um, this is a podcast. It's, it's for the workers. It's on the behalf of the working class. And here we are. Um, we have uh, um, 50, 50 guests for this episode. Uh, real life construction workers, and they're outside <laughs> Dean's <right>. window. <laughs> That's right. You can all get a, a real sights and sounds of the city situation. Uh, last night, actually, um, I was talking to Emily, uh, my partner, and she was like, I really want to tell them all to go home. But then I'm like, oh, they probably do want to go home. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, big bummer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, now that we have that um, out of the way, welcome to our guests, the workers outside Dean's window. Um, we're going to do uh, a little bit more on evangelicalism this week. Last week, we talked about sort of conservative evangelicalism, and this week, we're going to tackle the more liberal or progressive types of evangelicalism and all the weird political hangups they have. Um, but before we do, we do have to do um, the housekeeping for the week. Um, and uh, so here it goes. Here it goes. Um, shout out to all the Patreon subscribers out there <laughs> who have been supporting the Magnificast and have been, um, you know, helping us, uh, helping us, yeah, just kind of figure out what our priorities are and do these kind of new exciting arcs and spend more time on uh, doing actual journalism even. It's been awesome. Um, so if you want to become a Patreon subscriber of The Magnificast, you can at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. Just get, get in there and give us a little bit of your money and uh, we'd really appreciate it. Uh, but if you can't do that, that's cool too. Just uh, jump onto iTunes and uh, do uh, leave us a nice iTunes review. Give us a five out of five star. Leave us a little note that says how much you like us. It'd be great if people would stop saying they hate us. Um, that's a thing that I would like to stop. But you know what? I'm not here. I'm, I'm living living my life, speaking the truth, and people might hate me for it. So I guess it's fine. That's it. We don't uh, get too many of the uh, the negative reviews these days. No, just a few. 
Um, a few yeah. people don't like us. That's fine. But those few people, they really stick in my craw, whatever, whatever <laughs> that is. <laughs> yeah, All right. where exactly is your craw on like an anatomically correct uh, drawing of a human body? I'm yeah, not sure. I think it's, um, you know, I think it's hard to point out, but you know when something's in there. That's right. Yeah, that's right. You can feel the craw. <laughs> you can feel something in there. Uh, yuck. I hate the craw. Um, okay. <laughs> so uh, before we uh, before we move on, though, uh, we do have to kind of, uh, we do have one big Reddit question that we do need answered. Dean, I need your theological expertise. Um, on this one, I should say too that this is our first ever user submitted um, our Christianity post. So I really appreciate that. If uh, if any of you are out there mining the depths of our Christianity and you want to send me um, one of the uh, one of one of these weird posts that you found, just DM the Magnificast with a link, and uh, we'll we'll maybe we'll read it on the show if it's weird enough. <laughs> and it usually is. It's hard to find one that's that's not weird enough, honestly. Not um, a lot of normal posts. Yeah, not a lot of normal posts. That's right. This one is from um, Reddit user. Uh, <laughs> work is a fuck. So um, <laughs> sorry for swearing. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm not sorry. But um, <laughs> well, you didn't really. You're just reading. I'm just definitely reading. Someone else swearing, did. The, someone reading. did the swear and I'm just relating the name to you. OK, That's right. uh, cool. So here is the question, Dean, that I need you to answer or help me answer. From um, a Reddit post eight days ago. Opinions on speeding. What do you guys think about speeding in general? Is it something Christians should avoid at all costs? My personal opinion is that speeding by itself would be a sin for breaking the law. But there are many other facts to consider. If you're doing slower than the limit, <laughs> people will try to pass you. That, this, is arguably, this is arguably more dangerous than following the limit. And I actually have had a near miss because of this. Personally, I follow the speed limit on a regular road and flow of traffic on highways. On regular roads, the pedestrians are more likely in danger than the drivers. And the speed limit is That's designed true. to protect them. It is true. On highways, I follow the flow of traffic because I consider it safer for the cars around me. This is like the most boring description of someone <laughs> following the speed limit I've ever read. Yeah. Uh, okay, I do go faster if I am behind a truck to pass it because a truck impedes my line of sight and slows down quite a bit going up hills. Mm -hmm. I have to confess that I am quite guilty of going unnecessarily fast myself sometimes, and I need to work on that with God's help. So, Dean, there's a lot of questions in here. There's a lot of theological assumptions to wrestle with and grapple with. Um, so what is your opinion as a person who does know about ethics and politics and Christianity? Is speeding a sin in general, because it's breaking the law. A sin at, uh, should they avoid it at all costs? That one really stuck out to me. Yeah. Is there <laughs> is there no situation under which speeding would ever be morally permissible? Right. Um, yeah. Well, whenever I think about sin, if I want to know if something is a sin or not, the one spiritual exercise that I do is I try to imagine Jesus doing it. And uh, if if I can imagine him doing it, if it makes sense, then it must not be a sin. Uh, but if I can't imagine Jesus doing it, if I can only imagine him wagging a finger at it, then it must be a sin. And I have to admit that I can imagine Jesus speeding or mm -hmm. in, in a few situations, maybe. So uh, Jesus is on that donkey. The donkey is going way yeah. too fast. Mm -hmm. I can believe that. Yeah. And a centurion pulls him over and he's like, I'm out of here. <laughs> Drives right away. Too too fast, too donkey um, in that situation. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's right. Yeah, exactly. So I have to conclude that speeding is not a sin, although I do commend this uh, Reddit user for paying uh, very close attention in driver's ed probably two days ago. <laughs> That's true. Eight days ago. Um, okay, but here's <laughs> another perspective that maybe you haven't thought about. Uh, in Romans, in the Bible, you're familiar with that? I I've would heard of suspect, that one. Yeah. It does say that you have to submit to the government. And the law uh -huh. is an extension of the government. Therefore, uh -huh. it's a sin to go too fast. Hmm. Now, could I imagine the Apostle Paul speeding? I guess not. I think no. the Apostle Paul is probably nope. a, a real speed limit kind of guy. He's definitely that guy going exactly 65. Unless the, the flow of traffic demands it. This is the real gray area. The the poster has already called our attention to the problem here because what if the flow of traffic is above the speed limit? It would be too dangerous not to. Mm -hmm. Listen, what I'm saying is the speed limit was created for human beings, not human beings for the speed limit. Now that's an idea. <laughs> Straight out of the Bible. Uh-huh. Okay. And all, But think about it this way too. <laughs> um, so say you're a Samaritan. And if you're going too fast along the side of the road, you're not going to see the person that needs your help. Hmm. If you're speeding past them, right? So maybe you got to mm -hmm. go slow to see if anyone needs you. I don't know. Um, <laughs> there's okay. There are speed demons. Is that anything? The demons, oh, they speed. Right. Is that that there must are be speed something demons? So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know, though, because speeding in, in that that metaphor or that saying makes me think that speeding would, would lead you to hell. But I want to be on the fast track uh, past the speed limit straight to heaven. Oh, yeah. Okay. Good point. I want to, how do I go faster to heaven? Hmm. There are no speed angels though. So it's just a mystery. It's a mystery that only God will reveal to us one day. Yeah, that's true. I hope that's what, uh, we get up to those pearly gates and where there are no speed limits. Right. There's a highway to hell though. Uh, that's not in the Bible. That's <laughs> in an, an ACDC song. And that's I th right. Uh, <laughs> a highway to hell and a stairway to heaven. Okay. Cause stairways, you have to go kind of slowly up ascending. But there's no speed limit on the stairway. That's what I'm saying. There's no speed limits in heaven in heaven at all. So yeah, good point. Okay, this is the this is um we've crossed the line from this being a fun conversation to a silly one, and I think that we're done now. I think that we've done it. That you can you can I think you're right. Speeding is probably not a mortal sin, or even a venial one. Probably neither of them, huh? <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's talk about um, progressive evangelicals, because whenever I'm having a problem wanting something that people think is a sin to not be a sin, I just go to these loosey-goosey liberal Christians who don't believe in the Bible and just make it say whatever they want. <laughs> Good. That's the place you should look. Liberal Christians, they're always telling you how things in the Bible <laughs> don't really apply. Conservative Christians <laughs> would never do that. That's right. Um, so last week, uh, we did this big arc on evangelical, uh, evangelicalism, and we talked a little bit of our own about our own experiences in evangelicalism. Uh, we talked about like white evangelicalism and the 2016 election. And then we talked a little bit more about kind of like evangelical patterns of thinking or, um, I don't know, just, just weird habits that they have that link them to capitalism and complementarianism and white supremacy and all that kind of stuff. So while this arc is primarily concerned, I think, more on these conservative strains, we thought it might be a good idea to do some fair and balanced journalism here and talk about progressive evangelicalism and some of its shortcomings at, from a kind of like Marxist perspective. So trying to push the conversation further left or, or think about, you know, what would a, a, a lefty type really think about these progressive folks? 
Right. We want to be fair and balanced. Um, in a past episode, we talked about how Mike Pence was a Christian, and it's just something that Christians are going to have to deal with and kind of find ways to, you know, um, police, I guess, and for lack of a better term. Um, though, with that being said, you know, Mike Pence is a Christian, but also folks like Jim Wallace and Tony Campolo and Gregory A. Boyd and Brian Zond are all Christians, too. And while we're politically closer to those progressive evangelicals than Mike Pence, um, there is like um, these more progressive forms of evangelicalism do have like their own sort of set of political baggage to work out as well. So it's not just that um, Christians on the right are bad, but it's also that like evangelical like progressives kind of have some weird stuff to work out as well. If you think back to the episode we did with Tad DeLay, he set up evangelicalism as uh, like a theological framework that thrived off of the creation and maintenance of turmoil in the life of evangelicals. If you didn't hear that episode or you don't remember, that's fine. It's an idea that's worth restating. So summarizing Tad DeLay's argument in the book's forward, Clayton Crockett writes, White evangelical desire intends to generate turmoil in our world because it is acting out of a profound fantasy of what it means to be chosen by God. The big idea is sort of counterintuitive. We tend to think that people try to flee from suffering and turmoil in their lives. After all, like, you know, why would you want something bad to happen to you? Like, why would you be in a situation where you want to create that feeling? But as Tad DeLay argues, the evangelical way of thinking participates in constructing a world where God's people are always under attack by the enemy, you know, Satan or whatever other, you know, theological force in the world. So the main point here is that evangelicalism creates the turmoil it hopes to one day resolve through complex Christian eschatologies. That's how, um, that's like the pathology. That's the way of thinking that uh, right-wing evangelicals have, according to Tad DeLay. Um, and cool. I mean, that's right. Conservatives are really goofy. And um, that's something that we should think about and figure out. And we totally will in some more episodes here. But there are evangelicals who have, through, you know, contemplation, biblical scholarship, and other modes of analysis, who have gotten around all of these like weird, goofy hangups. Um, so yeah, there's a huge difference between someone like Jim Wallace and Gregory Boyd and right-wing evangelicals like Mike Pence and others. Um, you know, we're not smart psychoanalysts like Tad DeLay by any stretch of the imagination, but more left-leaning evangelicals work out their struggles with politics in a weirder and different way. So evangelicals that are on the right are all about turmoil, but evangelicals on the left uh, have different ways of expressing that political weirdness. Um, so rather than embracing the political machine and pushing an agenda that is perfectly happy with letting like white supremacists just run wild and uh, that will inevitably kill children and grandchildren through climate change, progressive Christians choose a path of political incompetence through the rejection of <laughs> politics as such. And I know that sounds like a big claim, right? Like it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a wild thing to claim that, well, you know, the right wing, they want to do politics and they like kind of don't care if people get hurt in the hurt in the crossfire. They want to do their agenda and, you know, to hell with everybody else, literally. Um, but progressive Christians, it seems like uh, they don't really have a deep interest in um, actually being political actors in any kind of organized sense. And, um, that is a big claim. You're not wrong. And maybe it's kind of a mean claim and fine, but we're going to try to show you through a deep dive, um, you know, in the shallow end of things, uh, of so how some big progressive ish evangelicals try to show, um, you know, how to they try to speak a rhetorical, uh, a rhetorically political language, but when it actually comes to, you know, what it means, it isn't actually much. So, um, the point is that we're trying to show here is that, uh, the, the progressive evangelical sets up a, uh, um, a type of politics that just, you know, in the end is sort of empty. So uh, we're going to do that by looking at Jim Wallace. We're going to look at Brian Zond and we're going to look at uh, Gregory A. Boyd and kind of talk through some of the big ideas in their work. So Dean, tell us, tell us about this Jim Wallace guy. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I should say, I think this, uh, the way that these three authors kind of progress in the conversation is sort of increasing levels of uh, rhetorical radicalism. Um, and that's to say that Jim Wallace is a, uh, a really like conciliatory kind of person. I think that's the way that I would put it. If you don't know who Jim Wallace is, he's a pretty popular progressive evangelical. He was kind of the, the progressive-ish answer to the moral majority. Um, so he has a conservative sort of view of what Christianity is in some respects, right? Like he believes the Bible. He, he wants to believe in what the Bible says. And he thinks that if you do that, then the Bible actually means that you, you know, shouldn't like, for example, like wars and stuff. And like, that's cool. That's good. Uh, but he also has an, a history of having some conservative ideas about, say, like the LGBT movement or uh, a number of other kinds of, of progressive struggles. And maybe we'll talk about that a little bit in a minute. Um, but all that to say, Jim Wallace is a, a really towering figure. He is somebody who set up, um, along with others, of course, a, a publication called Sojourners, um, which is a pretty big deal voice in progressive Christianity, progressive evangelicals. It's good. Even. Um, read it. It is good. They they even publish. I published an article there once um, about Kathleen Schultz of Christians for Socialism. So like, we're glad that that exists. <laughs> um, all that by way of introduction to say Jim Wallace is a big deal, and we're gonna uh, try to figure out why why he thinks the things that he thinks, and maybe think through what it would mean to be a, a Marxist and think about his own kind of proposal. So. To get into this, uh, we, we looked at this book called God's Politics. Um, I don't know, strangely named. <laughs> but the subtitle is um, uh, Why the Right Gets It Wrong and the Left Doesn't Get It. Nope, uh, don't like again, that. We'll talk, more, <laughs> we'll talk more about that rhetor rhetorical turn because there's a lot of reasons not to like it. Um, to set up the conversation, the book was written in 2005, right after the bush Kerry election. And it's kind of Jim Wallace's way of making sense, I guess, of that election and trying to even piece together, like, what would it mean for these two different parties to actually kind of pay attention to a different kind of Christianity, right? God's politics, something that, that isn't reducible to Republicans or Democrats. So I'm going to open up this quote here and we'll get into it. And this kind of, I think, is a, a really good, like, through line. Like, if you had to pick just one major theme, this would be it. So it comes from the introduction and he says, Clearly, God is not a Republican or a Democrat, and the best contribution of religion is precisely not to be ideologically predictable or loyally partisan, but to maintain the moral independence to critique both the left and the right. So that's Jim Wallace's big, huge uh, kind of it's a it's a perfect summation of his project. Uh, and even till today, this is kind of the uh, the thing that he's still doing. So, Matt, how does that kind of rhetoric strike you? Yeah, I think it's an important one to note sort of formally, because this is the type of rhetoric we're going to see amongst um, all of the progressive evangelical Christian types that we'll talk about today, that Christianity is bigger than the left and the right, and that it can it can speak into both of those types of political arrangements and ideologies, and it can have, you know, a powerful critique of them. And I think on its face, Jim Wallace is right. I mean, Christianity is bigger than the left and the right. Um, that's true. Um, but at the same time, it's kind of a weird thing to say or a troubling thing to say, because while Christianity is bigger than, you know, um, the American political spectrum or something, there is a certain type of like, you know, normative set of beliefs that Christians should have and that they can be expressed, um, you know, 
they can only be expressed kind of through political means in certain types of imaginative horizons, a word that will probably come to use a lot in this conversation. Um, <laughs> so I guess what I'm trying to say here is that Christianity is definitely bigger than the left or the right, but there's a social ethic that is normative to Christianity um, or, you know, should be normative to Christianity maybe that um, can be expressed through politics. So I, I guess um, what I don't like about Jim Wallace, what he's saying here is that um, – that there's somehow Christian Christianity is outside of politics when I think that it is actually thoroughly enmeshed within it. Yeah. I mean, what's wild about Wallace is he, he's not like, um, he doesn't think we should retreat from like civic politics or anything like that. He spends a lot of time talking to Republicans and Democrats, for instance. Um, but it's this sort of meta position that he thinks that Christianity occupies that allows him to, feel as though he's outside of the fundamental um, confrontation between these two political parties. And I think that, like, the more that I have thought about Jim Wallace, uh, I've kind of come down to two, like, baseline observations. And Matt, maybe tell me how this uh, makes sense to you, too. One is that I think that what Jim Wallace does is he kind of trades politics for morality and the morality moral language, saying that Christianity is a kind of moral, you know, education, etc. All of that allows him to feel as though he's kind of um, transcended politics, or he's really arguing for like a real transformation of politics as a result of that broader moral framework. It's a bigger umbrella for him. Uh, so that's the one side. And the other side is that uh, because he can only conceive of politics then underneath morality as a matter of like getting Republicans or Democrats together and figuring that kind of stuff out, his what you just called this imaginative horizon is totally limited to those two ways of expressing differences within capitalism. Right. So the left is the Democrats and the right is the Republicans. So the way those two things go together is he has this moral position that makes him feel like he's trying to really corral the uh, the left and the right who can't, you know, figure it out because they don't have this this broader, wider perspective. Uh, but the left and the right that he also wants to corral are extremely limited as well. I don't know. Does that kind of make sense? Like those just seem to me like the base kind of limitations that Jim Wallace wants to work within. Yeah, I think that does make sense. I like the way that you put it, right? Like where he puts morality, morality supersedes politics and Christianity speaks to morality. So that's how it's beyond sort of politics. But I feel like, I mean, you know, from the from Marxist perspectives, from structural critique, I don't think that quite works out. Right. Because um, from the Marxist perspective, the, the what's at the base of everything is the 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 material realities uh, founded on you know who wields power but also economics um, and like who owns the means of production ultimately right so you so for Marxists it's really hard to kind of understand how morality would somehow supersede politics um, and how religion would then inform it right it doesn't it's sort of like the wrong order of operations from the Marxist perspective. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, we'll talk about what Wallace thinks about capitalism in a minute because he does have some points in this book where he gestures toward it. Uh, but just to stay on this kind of morality thing, uh, I think it's really fascinating to read this book in light of the the Bush Kerry election because so many of the themes here are actually themes that have become like journalistic memes after the Trump election. Mm -hmm. So like talking about the religious left and you know, being like, where are the Democrats, right? And like Pete Buttigieg is kind of riding this wave of being the guy who talks to Christians. Um, and all that can sound super new or fresh or whatever, at least a lot of journalists kind of write that way. Um, but I mean, all you have to do is follow like the career, like the whole life of someone like Jim Wallace to find out these are actually pretty like tropey things in some ways. 
And to give you an idea, uh, when Wallace is talking about like why he thinks George Bush won uh, that 2004 election, I think that there is a lot uh, that kind of gets revealed here. So he says this, if the Democrats could take the opportunity of a political defeat to really assess their language and style, the way they morally frame public policy issues and their cultural disconnect with too many Americans, including many people of faith, then they could transform the political discourse but it will require a serious reassessment. And if they are further willing to re-examine their positions on some of the cultural or moral issues the Republicans beat them with in 2004, they could virtually change the political landscape. If the Democrats could be persuaded by both good political sense and sound moral values to moderate some of their positions by becoming anti-abortion without criminalizing an agonizing and desperate choice and being pro-family without being anti-gay, they would change politics in America by giving permission to millions of voters who would naturally vote for them, except for the cultural and moral divide they feel with democratic language and policies. All right. Yikes. I have a lot of thoughts about that, but I'm just going to throw it to you, Matt. Uh, how does that paragraph um, kind of shake out? Well, it's weird. I mean, it's weird for a few different reasons, and um, I'm interested to hear what you have to say about it. I guess the thing that strikes me as being so weird in the first place is that, first of all, he's like putting the onus on... Um, on Democrats. I mean, it's, I mean, he's doing this because it's, you know, in light of George Bush winning, but like, I don't know. It's just asking Democrats to become more moderate. And like, why, (laughs) why would Democrats (laughs) want to do like, he's like, well, Democrats, what if you were just more like Republicans? And like, for what reason would that possibly be good? (laughs) I mean, Republicans are already, you know, super, I mean, even, even when George Bush was elected, right, they're super far right wing, they're super reactionary. And Democrats were too, like, why would that, de- why should we want Democrats to give up any, you know, cultural, cultural victories, they might, <laughs> they might win. It just does not make any sense to me why you'd want this to be the case. I mean, he he's not wrong. I mean, because given the 2016 election, he's not wrong that white evangelicals have political power. But still, like, we should find ways to negotiate that political power and not just make both political parties more like one another. Yeah, I think that's a good point because basically what Wallace does is he concedes all the moral points to the Republicans as though they were just moral and not political points. Right. Uh, I mean, we've talked about this in the podcast before too, but the crazy thing about the, the right in general, especially in the United States, is that they actually do do politics. Like, they don't really care about what the Democrats think or Mm -hmm. what other people think. They have uh, an agenda that they want to push through, and liberals and progressives tend to be a little more, um, I don't know, like they have a kind of imaginary sense of civility or something like that uh, that precludes them from doing that. And so they always end up getting pulled to the right by whatever the Republicans, you know, refuse to to budge on. Um, And I think the way this comes out in Wallace is bad because it's not political, but also bad because it causes him to sacrifice uh, vulnerable populations like the LGBT community or, you know, poor and struggling women or, or women making a choice about their bodies, etc. Uh, they are sacrificed to the the moral compromise of the Republican Party or something. Yeah. I so just, it's like, yeah. No, go ahead. Oh, I especially hate that part because um, the the part that rubs me. I mean, like exactly these these things rub me the wrong way because he's asks he's asking people who are already suffering to like sorry just put your uh, feelings on hold for a second, right? Like becoming anti-abortion without criminalizing and agonizing and des uh, and desperate choice uh, and being pro-family without being anti-gay. Like these are such dumb positions because like 
what what you're saying is like become you know democrats need to become more moderate on these things while betraying the people that you know are their constituency like they're representing these people um it's just such a weird thing to say well yeah just be pro family without being anti gay which means like which <laughs> means be against gay marriage but don't be a homophobe which is a contradiction in terms i would say i just like yeah. it's what he's asking for here is like he wants both parties to sort of like um <laughs> moderate their terms but like he's really just saying democrats please be more friendly to republican voters and no no i don't think so Right. Um, I mean, there are a few places in this book where he basically talks about how uh, poverty should be like the unifying thing that both Democrats and Republicans can agree is like a problem that we need to solve. And as a result of that, he ends up kind of sidelining many of these other issues, Uh, although he like spends a lot of time talking about like race and stuff like that, or even like talking about like Palestine and things. But for some reason, like he can't imagine uh, advocating for like I don't know, LGBT folks in the same way or something. Right. So I think there's something about that that is significant and also maybe betrays the conservatism at the heart of so much of progressive Christianity. Um, but <laughs> I do want to kind of push us in the, the capitalism direction. Um, so let me hit you with this. I did like a, a control F search through this book uh, for all kinds of things, Marxism and related terms, nothing like that, nothing about socialism, et cetera. But there are a few uh, references to capitalism, and here I think it's the most telling one. So he says, corporate CEOs, no less than everyone else, have a responsibility to the common good, not just to the bottom line. The entrepreneurial spirit and social innovation fostered by a market economy has benefited many and should not be overly encumbered by unnecessary or stifling regulations. But left to its own devices and human weakness, okay, let's call it sin, the market will too often disintegrate into greed and corruption as each week's reports of corporate wrongdoing painfully reveal. Capitalism needs rules or it easily becomes destructive. A healthy, balanced relationship between free enterprise on the one hand and public accountability and regulation on the other is morally and practically essential as many are now coming to see. Uh, I'll maybe talk a little bit more about how this catches out for him in terms of electoralism, but uh, what can we say about that, Matt, as maybe Christian Marxists? Yeah, well, I mean, on the one hand, it doesn't even meet like the minimum criteria for being critical in any way, right? Um, He just says the entrepreneurial spirit and social innovation fostered by a market economy has benefited many and should not be overly encumbered by unnecessary stifling regulations. Like, how do you make that judgment? Like what through what lens is that true? And how, you know, why would we come to agree with you? Why would we agree that that is a given? And I think that is bad. <laughs> um, so I think that he should question some of those givens in his life. And, and how does he know that's true? I think is a question I would ask Jim Wallace. Um, also, I, I think this does speak to sort of the, like I said a minute ago, the imaginative horizon that some progressive evangelicals have, or at least Jim Wallace has, that, um, you know, we can find sort of like some some like more, you know, things that would be liberal values or whatever within Christianity, but still uh, capitalism is one thing that like they are not going to get around. You can't get around capitalism as being sort of the end all and be all of economics, uh, a real sort right. of like um, the, the uncritical acceptance of market economies. Um, and I mean, capitalist economies uh, just show you that like these people, for whatever reason, have really given in, given themselves over to like the end of history, that capitalism is just it and there's no way around it. And I mean, he was writing in 2005, um, so it was sort of a different uh, a different vibe, right? Socialism wasn't popular again, but still it's like uncritical and I don't like it. And um, 
and uh, would like some citations here about what he means. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, like, Jim Wallace, to his credit, and many other people who are in the Sojourners Network have done really, like, genuinely good and important mobilizations on all kinds of actions, and they and they still do today. Uh, and I think that's one reason that I find these kinds of stances so uh, frustrating, because, like, they're willing to recognize the the relationships of exploitation in, say, like, the U.S. government's immigration policies, right? That they're like, this is an exploitative uh, thing and a, and a violent uh, structure. Um, and they might say the same about something like white supremacy or whatever, like depending on who you're talking to. But when it comes to capitalism, the idea is that, well, if we could just kind of like grease it in the right way, you know, make sure all the gears are turning the way they're supposed to turn, then all moral actors would kind of like figure it out. Like there's a real Adam Smith kind of faith in, in the market here, right? Like mm -hmm. he says it's the result of sin that uh, left to its own devices, capitalism will will get messed up, which is literally Adam Smith's point. That's why he was also a moral philosopher, right? He felt like you had to be a, a good moral actor in order to make all this competition stuff work. And I think it's like a really strange kind of having your cake and eating it too. And from a Marxist perspective, it's like you really need to figure out the ways in which this economy is an exploitative economy no matter how you regulate it or hold it accountable. Like it cannot be ultimately regulated or held accountable, I guess. It is kind of a betrayal too of the moralism that he was espousing in a few, you know, when we the from the quote earlier that, um, you know, what's important is sort of like the Christian morality and politics, you know, it comes under that. But here we're seeing kind of the opposite, right? That, well, capitalism does exist and sin does exist at that level of uh, economics. And it's just weird that like, I don't know, I'm just not seeing like a really rigorous way of thinking about the material conditions in uh, Wallace's book. And if you're going to write a book about politics, I think that you need to do that. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, I don't want to spend too, too much because I know we have uh, other other places to go in this podcast, but um, two things to kind of end on here. Earlier, you said one main difference between uh, the conservative and progressive evangelicals is that progressive evangelicals are politically uh, impotent or like not, um, you know, not capable of really solving the, the systemic problems that they are trying to address. Uh, and I think that comes out, especially in Wallace, when he talks about liberals and conservatives as these kinds of like uh, like obvious sets of beliefs, right? Yeah. So he, he says at one point, um, liberals must no longer be content to just service poverty instead of overcoming it, and conservatives must stop merely blaming poor people for their poverty instead of taking some responsibility themselves. Real solutions to poverty will require both liberals and conservatives to take new responsibility and lead us all to new approaches that transcend the old political options of left and right. And I think what's wild about this kind of, of thinking is that it's like, hey, like liberals and conservatives are fundamentally wrong, but it's just because they're like not willing to sort of, you know, humble themselves and like talk to one another. Yeah, it, It's never that we need to get rid of this entire paradigm of thinking about things that has caused society to be the way that it is. It's like we just need to figure out a way to kind of tamp down our own like reactions to each other and then it will all kind of you know will be led <laughs> by our elected officials into some new political option that's not just left or right which i think is ex <laughs> well <laughs> all right there's a limited imaginative horizon in one sense but there's also an extremely <laughs> wide <laughs> imaginative horizon in another right it's 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 looking for a moderation between two things he thinks are extremes but are not actually extremes right Right. Um, all right. The last thing that I want to pull out here is uh, just kind of an aside, but I think it's really important that we name it on this podcast. Um, 
So Jim Wallace, speaking of imaginative horizons, at one point sets a scene for us just to you know get into uh, the the people that he's talking about, not just the issues. And I'll read these couple of paragraphs, and we'll just see where we go. <clears throat> she was working the drive-through window at four o'clock in the afternoon, but whenever there was a lull between orders, the young woman kept returning to a table in the corner of the restaurant. Three kids were sitting there with school books, papers, and pencils all spread out, doing their homework and mom was helping as best she could while keeping straight the orders for Whoppers, fries, and chicken nuggets. Given her low wages, this single mother was no doubt balancing more than fast food and homework, but also deciding between paying the rent, going to the doctor, and affording prescriptions when somebody gets sick, or buying winter boots for her kids. And here's where it takes a turn. She has become an icon for me. I call her Burger King Mom. <laughs> uh, just wait, because there, there are a few more characters we need to add to this cast. Uh, he says, in election years, the pundits talk often about soccer mom and how she will vote. Both the Democrats and the Republicans court her. Since the president went to Daytona, there's a new electoral icon. He's called NASCAR dad, and his support is crucial, especially for Republicans. Also in the 2004 election, attention focused on security mom. But who will speak to or for Burger King mom? She exists in both red and blue states. So, Matt, who's going to speak to or for a Burger King mom? Um, boy, this is uh, the weirdest way. OK, this is this is the <laughs> biggest signal fire that this that Jim Wallace needs desperately to understand economics, <laughs> to understand like deeply that the material and historical conditions of people are really important. And you can't just you can't just divide people up into these weird <laughs> these weird subsections of NASCAR dad and Burger King mom and security mom. Um, this is what. Um, this is what Marxists would call illusory communities, um, <laughs> communities that you think that you um, that you are a part of that obscure um, that you're really a part of the working class or, you know, the bourgeoisie or something. <laughs> um, and that this is it's a weird way of doing it's just a weird way of doing politics of separating people out based on these like lifestyle choices. But Burger King mom is is decidedly different, though, in this because she is working class and that's important. She's like. A mom that uh, is balancing, um, you know, doing domestic labor, like raising children, and also doing capitalist labor, like working at Burger King. She, um, it's a good question, Jim Wallace, who is going to speak for her is honestly a really good question. Um, and, uh, you know, Jim Wallace, he does have some things to say about wages and stuff. But I mean, like, I mean, from our perspective, like unions speak for her, socialists speak for her, uh, Jim Wallace <laughs> He's just idolizing her. He's just uh, he's watching her across the room, <laughs> not speaking for her, though. Yeah, I mean, it's tough because, like, on the one hand, I do want to be kind of kind to Jim Wallace because he does, like, think that there should be a huge increase in the minimum wage and all that kind of stuff, right? Like, like as far as capitalists go, like, he wants to be a, a, a nice one, a more compassionate one. Right. But I think that's also exactly the problem, right, that, like... Uh, on the one hand, like he is making fun of this trope of like reducing whole political issues into like a stand in person and then kind of taking advantage of it. Right. Flipping it on its head like this NASCAR dad, soccer mom or whatever. What about Burger King mom? Uh, but I think that like it's exactly that kind of, um, I guess, like assumption that the person that would end up speaking for Burger King mom would be like an elected Democrat or an elected Republican that ultimately undermines everything that Wallace is trying to say. Like, if God's politics amounts to getting a bunch of elected Republicans and Democrats into a room and having them agree that poverty is a problem, then, like, 
that is not the same God's politics that's happening in like Brazil or like Cuba or, you know, Nicaragua or the Philippines. Like that's a very kind of a very different kind of God's politics. And I find it a bit troubling anyway that Jim Wallace just doesn't really seem to uh, have internalized any of those kinds of like robust actual class analyses that would really call for a transformation, right? Like so much of the book is about transforming politics, but literally none of it is about transforming political economy. Yeah, like I could imagine Jim Wallace kind of retorting and saying like, well, you know, this is this is the poverty is the place that Democrats and Republicans should agree on like that. It's a problem, right? Like they should care about working mom. But the the problem is that like they would both agree that it is a problem, right? And they could, and they might agree for moral reasons. They might uh, they might have a religious reason for believing poverty is a problem. But what sucks is that like exactly they would never think of transforming the political economy. They would think of like they they would just rely on their own capitalist ideologies to say, well, it sucks. Maybe she should find another job. Maybe there should be like a, a state safety net. Maybe she just isn't working hard enough. Maybe she should get a second job. Right? Their answers to poverty would be completely stunted, and uh, I don't like it. Yeah. Well, all right. We spent a long time on Jim Wallace. Yeah, we sure did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you've pulled out some stuff from Brian Zond and uh, Gregory Boyd. Uh, do you want to go to them with the last, you know, 20 minutes, half hour or so? Yeah, for sure. Let's do it. Okay, so Brian Zond. We're going to talk about him next. Uh, Brian Zond is a contemporary, popular pastor, definitely one of those liberal types. Um, pretty popular to he probably wouldn't say that he's a liberal weirdly enough yeah he, but, uh, but conservatives would say that he is that's right he wouldn't say he's a liberal but conservatives would and i would say he's a liberal so finally something <laughs> yeah, that yeah. conservatives and a marxist agree on um <laughs> yeah uh i mean brian zond is not like the most like dangerous person i don't think in the world i mean that's the thing about these folks is they're not dangerous in the sense like that like right-wing people are but they're dangerous in the sense that they don't really have you know much of an interest in doing politics and in turn that means that they're not really using their um you know their political power to speak out for the people that need it um so yeah i don't know uh we'll work out more of this in a minute so brian zond has a blog that he published in august and i kind of just pulled a few lines from because it's a pretty good example of like you know brian zond's thing um and let's just kind of get into it so this is from a uh, blog he wrote called trumped and uh here's the opening when I pulled away from lockstep allegiance with the religious right because I had seen the kingdom of God and had begun to take Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount seriously, many politically conservative Christians accused me of, quote, going over to the other side. Committed as they were to a dualistic us versus them paradigm, they could only interpret my kingdom conscious approach to politics as traitorous. If you're not on our side, you must be on their side. In their closed dualistic system, even Jesus has to be a Republican or a Democrat. So my honest claim to have no interest in the left-right political divide because I only cared about following Jesus fell on deaf ears. They could not see the kingdom alternative I was pointing to. They could only see us versus them, Republicans versus Democrats, elephants versus donkeys. They were incredulous about my claims to only be interested in following the lamb. Yes, I learned the hard way that if the kingdom of Christ is not perceived as a viable alternative society, then competition for conventional political power seems like the only option for influencing the world. All right, so we see a lot of the same stuff we saw in Jim Wallace here too, that um, that uh, you know Christianity is not just left or right. That following Jesus is a peculiar way of living that's completely different. It's it's radical. It's a uh, it's not conventional political power, right? You get all these kind of tropes here, but um, but when it comes to like what this actually means, it's kind of 
vague, if not meaningless. I mean, I, I don't want to like oversell like, you know, maybe that part of this, but it, I, I can't, I can't understand what this really means. Right. They could only like, he's talking here about conservatives. They could only see it as an us versus them kind of thing. They couldn't think about how Jesus would be doing something that isn't us versus them or left versus right. But like, I don't know, I don't know what it would mean to not, to not do that. I mean, there are people who are in power who exploit those beneath them. And that is the sum of politics. That's the history of you know, the world, it's class struggle. It's even what we see in the Bible. We see in us versus them. And Jesus kind of works it out in a way that is more or less pretty political. And maybe not in terms of Democrats versus Republicans, but it's political is just the same. So saying that you don't want to do politics, you want to get away from left versus right, just, I don't know, doesn't really mean much to me. I don't really know what's going on there. Dean, what, yeah. what do you think? Save me from this from this hell that I've gotten myself into. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's tough because so many of these things are approximating a good point, right? Like, yes, if you're a Christian, you should be suspicious of both Republicans and Democrats. And I personally don't like the idolatry language because I think it often misses like good materialist rhetoric. But whatever, like if that's what does it for you, that's great. Like, you know, that's fine. And, and there's probably some truth to that. Uh, but I think that what's strange about this is uh, someone like Zond would be arguing, I think, even if he had to talk about politics for a kind of otherworldly politics or like a, you know, a, a, a kingdom politics that doesn't like neatly fit into like the box of, of worldly politics, etc. And I think that like, whereas maybe someone like Jim Wallace kind of moralizes politics, it seems to me like Brian Zond really like makes it an existential problem. Uh, it's like, it's just like a different way of being or like a different way of thinking about your life and your world. And the trouble is, it's that kind of uh, existentializing of politics that actually stops you from changing the world, right? It's like you're you're able to look around and see that a lot of this stuff is like illusory or, or made up or, or dumb or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but it doesn't allow you to be like, and it could be different. It's just kind of like, and I could be different. Yeah. And I think that is like uh, a depoliticization of something that could be a radicalizing realization. Yeah, I think so too. Um, okay. So kind of going forward with Brian Zond here. Um, so the, after he says that first kind of bit about, you know, his politics and how they're so different, um, and how that's an important difference for him, he starts going on to talk about Donald Trump and how he really doesn't like Donald Trump. And he can't believe that evangelicals are sort of like buying into it. Um, because, um, you know, not only is the left versus right bad, but like the specific, like the specific right wing evangelical that he sees kind of as a magnet to Trump is particularly bad, right? So left politics in general, bad, you should just follow Jesus, etc. But the specific type of um, instantiation of politics around Trump, especially bad. So um, he says this, he's quoting Trump here, by the way, um, it'll be, it'll be pretty <laughs> obvious. The only way to get rich is to be realistic and brutally honest. It is tough and people get hurt. So you have to be as tough as nails and willing to kick ass if you want to win. My motto is always get even. Even when somebody screws you, you screw them back in spades. That's Trump again. Very clear. Nice. Nice. <laughs> nice motto. This is Brian. This is Brian's response. God, I'm butchering this. <laughs> nice motto. Kicking ass and getting even are acceptable if you're an apprentice of Gordon Gecko, but not if you're an apprentice of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Nice. A big play on uh, play on words there. I appreciate that. You can, so you can understand why I had a pastoral conversation with my young disciple regarding his reading material. Donald Trump's screw them back motto and Jesus Christ's golden rule are mutually exclusive. Um, 
so you get it. He doesn't like Donald Trump. Um, but again, it's like um, he's he's kind of taking a moral approach to this uh, rather than a political approach. Um, so instead of saying like, okay, we can find political ways to oust this dude to defeat uh, to defeat him. Um, uh, instead of that, he says like, no, you just have to do a different type of morality or, or something. It's not actually clear what he wants you to do in any of these situations. But um, I don't know. Dean, what do you what do you think about this? Yeah, well, um, it's telling that the the juxtaposition here, right, is between Trump's motto and the golden rule, right? Uh, you could juxtapose Trump's motto to so many different things, or even Trump to so many different things, right? Like the prophets, like railing against the rich, you know, like Trump begins this quote that he even says, saying the only way to get rich is to be realistic and brutally honest, right? And like, what a great opportunity to be like, yeah, and you know where that gets you? Like, have you ever read James 5? You know, mm -hmm. like, I'm not even a pastor, <laughs> but uh, there are some biblical things swimming around in my brain that I think would be a, a much more powerful counterpoint to something like this uh, and would lead you again in a, in a politicizing direction. But uh, it gets reduced to this existential or moral approach. And again, like <laughs> the thing about Brian Zond is like he probably isn't like a mean person, but the fact that he takes himself to be so radical on these points mm -hmm. by virtue of getting outside somehow, I think is like a kind of intentional or not a self-satisfaction that I think actually is a bit dangerous for progressive Christianity. Yeah. Well, here's an expression of some of that, like, um, supposed radicality in his writing. Uh, Brian Zond later in that blog says this, the new Testament ends in revelation with a flourishing new Jerusalem of Christ reigning over the nations. I'm not looking for a new Babylon where some elephant or donkey sits on the throne. I'm looking for the new Jerusalem where the lamb sits on the throne. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, that sounds utopic and interesting, but like, I don't know what that means for politics now, um, I guess is kind of the thing that I keep coming to is that it's a it's a trope that even comes out in like Shane Claiborne's book, right? Like you want Jesus for president, that would be that'd be a wild thing to think or believe. But like, what it actually means is kind of like, beyond me and these people in the, in the in this writing, like, does it mean a different political economy? We don't know. Does it mean like, you know, does it mean um, a world where people aren't alienated from their labor? We don't know. It's just wild. Um, and then I think the conclusion of this piece uh, draws out more of like the problem. So I'm going to read that really quickly. Um, yeah. Uh, so right before this, right before this conclusion, though, he um, he's talking about all the things that bad things that Donald Trump has been doing. So that kind of is a precursor to what he's about to say. As I write this, I'm on a flight from Toronto. And for all I know, what I've written will be out of date by the time I land in Kansas City. Donald Trump will do more bad things, probably. I'm certain it will be out of date by the time this is published, but I write it anyways. I write it in memory of my father. I write it so I'll be on record. I write it so my grandchildren will know that during the Trump era, I wasn't duped. I wasn't silenced, and I didn't go along for the ride. I want them to know what I saw was happening. I knew it for what it was, and I spoke out. Like, okay, so that's fine, Brian. I, I think that's great. Like you should write and tell everyone that Donald Trump sucks. Like I'm behind you right there. But like writing isn't politics. Um, doing, mm -hmm. you know, like doing theory, it, it, it could be a part of politics, right? Writing could be a part of politics. It could be sort of support for like action and that kind of thing. But writing itself isn't political. And, and writing something just so that people know that you weren't duped is like, 
Like, what's the point? Like, why? Why would you, why would anyone care? Like, you weren't duped, but what did you do? Like, how did you organize <laughs> against Donald Trump? How did you organize for the, the you know, the immigrants in concentration camps? How did you organize for the people who are working, like, awful jobs and don't have a, a living wage? It's awesome that you can see through this because you believe in a world where Jesus is on the throne. But what are you doing? Ah, I mean, I hope something, but I don't know. <laughs> It just is like so painful to me. Like, like yeah. there are, there are, I mean, there are even liberals in the world doing extremely good political work. Like they're doing advocacy work and like what, and why aren't you a part of it? I guess is what I'm asking. Like even Jim Wallace. Yeah. Even Jim Wallace. I just, I just think it's so that I think this is so sad because it's just like, it's trying so hard to be something important and say something important. But when it actually comes down to it, it's not, it's not doing something. It's not doing it. It's politically ineffectual. I guess is all I'm trying to say. Yeah. And and maybe, maybe I don't know, maybe Brian Zond is behind something like really important. Like uh, maybe he's really doing important organizing work, but, but I, I don't see it, I guess. So it just seems like it's, it's, um, it's ineffectual. It's not trying to actually change the world in a radical way where, where Jesus is sitting on the throne. I don't see it. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, he's not pushing other people to do movement building or, you know, organized kind of work in this public platform. Uh, you know, whatever he does in his private life, like, I, I'm not sure either. But uh, I do. I mean, you you mentioned, like, what he, what is he doing for kids in, like, concentration camps? I remember not too long ago on Twitter, there was kind of a, a dust up. And I think I, like, retweeted it, probably saying something mean from the Magnificast account. But I'm going to defend it. <laughs> Double down. He had, yeah, he had tweeted something about how, like, you know, he and his congregation has like people who work for ICE and people who are undocumented immigrants. Right. And he was like, isn't that such a like beautiful picture of like the church that this is a place where we can, you know, find a way to like maybe radically change these things. And he was like, you know, I don't like I don't approve of what ICE is doing or whatever, but this is the space that I'm trying to trying to make or whatever. Right. And it's like, well, <laughs> it sounds to me like you were duped then. Right. Because like. On the one hand, you're you're actively endangering the lives of undocumented immigrants in your congregation by having them go to church with ICE agents. Uh, and on the other hand, like you can't seem to preach a gospel that would alienate somebody who is literally working for an organization where like, you know, kids get sexually assaulted and like they die. You know, people they, are they are killed yeah. in, the, in ICE's custody like. Yeah, exactly. If you have people that are go that are in ice in your church and you're not convicting them to like quit their jobs, then I don't think you're doing enough. And like, you know, and and you know, yeah. I, like I'm not trying to say like I do so much organizing work and I'm such a good activist or something because I'm like not, but like I'm here I'm here for it. I guess is what I'm trying to say and I just don't see that. I don't see like I don't see that in Brian's work and I'm mad about it. Yeah. And I don't think it's just because of him personally. I think it's because this is the way that uh, progressive evangelicals think that there's like a, a radical Jesus-y way to get beyond left and right. And um, we just, you know, need to be faithful or whatever. But without changing the political economy, without changing like the structures of oppression and white supremacy, we're not doing anything. Yeah. I mean, that line that you had that writing isn't politics, I think that is like a perfect way of really summarizing this kind of, uh, you know, this thing of which Brian Zond is a symptom, even though he's not the only cost or something. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, let's talk about Gregory A. Boyd for a hot second here. We, we're almost to the end <laughs> of this hour, and we're going to go over it for sure because uh, that's what we're good at. Um, but the last thing that we took a look at for this week is Gregory A. Boyd's Myth of a Christian Nation. Um, it's an interesting book. I remember reading it when I was like 19 or 20. Um, I was in college and kind of getting into this whole like anarchism, uh, Christian anarchism thing. And this book was actually a, a pretty important thing when I read it. And looking back on it now, I have some critiques. Um, but we're going to see uh, here maybe a more intellectualized version of the tropes we see with Jim Wallace and with um, Brian Zond as well. So uh, Gregory A. Boyd's book, it's like um, it's not bad. I mean, you know, if, if you're kind of interested in uh, the sort of progressive Christian perspective, this is maybe the thing to go read. Um, it's not bad, but it does uh, have some blind spots and a way of thinking about the world that I think is um, – not good for political analysis. It, it's lacking, just to say the least. So his mm -hmm. book is uh, starts off with this this section called the Kingdom of the Sword, and what he's trying to do here is trying to differentiate like a worldly type of politics, you know, the left and the right that Wallace and Zond have been after, and he's trying to separate that out from like a Christian type of politics, a not of this world type of politics. So um, he he goes kind of at length to describe what the Kingdom of the Sword is. Um, and this is what he says, wherever a person or a group exercises power over others or tries to, there is a version of the kingdom of the world. It comes in many forms. The kingdom of the world is in essence a power over kingdom. So he's trying to describe a type of power, um, a political power, a political power that is exercised over people, right? Um, the reason why this was, this is exactly why this book was interesting to me when I was like 19 and 20, because it was talking about power in a way that was like... Um, against power. And so there's like, uh, I think a really strong anarchist vibe to this, but it never really gets to anarchism uh, as such. Um, he goes on to kind of uh, talk about this type of power a little bit more. So he says this, I refer to the power of that kingdom, uh, the kingdom of the world, uh, as the power of the sword. I'm not referring to a literal sword necessarily, though it's often been true, <laughs> an interesting aside, <laughs> but rather to the ability of those in power to inflict pain on those who threaten and defy their authority. The power of the sword is the ability to coerce behavior by threats and to make good on those threats when necessary. If a law is broken, you'll be punished. So that's, that's the type of power that Gregory A. Boyd is against. That's the kind of power that he sees as um, intrinsic to the power of this world. And I don't, I mean, he's not really wrong. I mean, like all governmental types of power are coercive in the, at the end of the day. Um, I mean, this is like discipline and punish type stuff, right? This is like Foucault's big point. Um, but I think the weird thing to, to me about this way of thinking is that all coercion is bad. And I don't necessarily believe that. I guess that's why I'm not an anarchist. Um, but it seems like oh, some coercion is extremely good, right? Coercing billionaires not to have billions of dollars seems all right to me. Um, coercing business owners not to make their workers work, you know, 14 hours a day seems like a good coercion, right? Like, um, unfortunately, people need to be coerced sometimes because if you don't, then they will not do what is in other people's best interest. And um, I don't know. I guess it sucks that we have to coerce people, but uh, coercing people <laughs> is like, for good is kind of what things are all about. Yeah, well, I mean, I think even more than that, like this argument is kind of a position of privilege because it does not have to contend with the coercion of structures of violence that are in the world right now, right? Like 
the fact that capitalism exists is already a coercion that you're actively participating in and, and you're forced to participate in it if you live in a capitalist economy, right? Uh, that's the kind of thing that it seems to me Greg Boyd doesn't or, or can't uh, theorize that it's not just governments or laws that coerce. It's not just the power of the sword. Like it's also the the inability to do anything or the um, the inability to build a political movement that could confront that. Right, uh -huh. the, a more retreatist impulse. Uh, it leaves in place a system of coercion that you would depend on if you wanted to, I guess, have this kind of escapist story that he seems to be telling. Yeah. So here's a little bit more that 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 gives more character to what he wants to do. Other than that, what's, you know, what the other option that's not the kingdom of the sword? So he says this, followers of Jesus must realize and must help others realize that the hope of the world lies not in any particular version of the kingdom of the world gaining the upper hand in Babylon's endless tit for tat game. The hope of the world lies in a kingdom that is not of this world, a kingdom that does not participate in tit for tat, a kingdom that operates with a completely different understanding of power it is in this kingdom established by Jesus Christ in a kingdom that is expanded by people committed to following him is the kingdom of God. Okay. Like, I guess what I don't like about this here, <laughs> this is like a, a long laundry list of things I don't like, but what I don't like about this here is that it's like, it's vague that you could read in a lot of things here. Like, but, but at the same time, it's just like, it's, it's a, a political perspective that's asking people to, it's asking individuals and maybe small communities to be morally upright, to do things that, you know, Jesus would do to become little Christ in that sense. But it's not actually questioning the kingdom of the world in any way. It's just asking people to live a different way of life. It's putting morality above politics. And I don't think that you can do that because what then then the coercion continues like why 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 do it like that it's just the the idea that morality is above politics and that's where that's where christians uh ought to be acting is just like um it's an unfounded truth i don't understand that meta part of the conversation yeah i agree um <laughs> things are getting wild outside my apartment but i'll make this point anyway um <laughs> the uh that line, you know, that the hope of the world doesn't lie in a particular version of the kingdom of the world gaining the upper hand or whatever. Like, I don't know. Like, yeah, like every political organization is fallible, right? Every governmental organization will not fully uh, realize the call for justice, whether you're a Christian or not. Um, but at the end of the day, like... <laughs> not all of the kingdoms of the world are exactly the same. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Some of them are a lot better than other ones. And like, you know, to pretend that these all can just be easily collapsed into, you know, the endless game of Babylon uh -huh. is just a, a refusal to think about it. Yeah, it is. A, it's a refusal to think about it. That's right. And it's just a way to keep it all, all at a distance, right? It's like, um, <laughs> I mean, it's it's weird how it's kind of a Christian pessimism in a, in a weird way that it's just like um there's nothing you can really do about that world so don't uh so don't do it and i think that sucks um okay <laughs> so here's a little bit of the the genealogy of thought behind this way of thinking um so gregory a boyd's book uh relies really heavily on these two other theologians who um you probably know about already named stanley Hauerwas and william williman two dudes who i think both taught at duke but maybe i'm wrong i don't know where williman is actually from but i know Hauerwas is at duke so anyways uh, a lot of these ideas are coming from their work and this is greg boyd kind of introducing us to it so this is what he says Stanley Hauerwas and William Willimon capture the unique nature of the true church, which is a phrase we can come back to in a minute, when they depict it as a small colony in a foreign land. Yikes. 
an, an island of one culture in the middle of another. <laughs> Double yikes. Uh, as the title of their masterful book denotes, we are to see ourselves as resident aliens. We are in the world, but are not of the world any more than Jesus was of the world, which is a weird way of thinking about it, too. Um, we are to march to the beat of a different drum and note this carefully, preserving this alien status, not as an addendum to our calling as a kingdom of God citizen. Um, it belongs to the essence of what it means to be a kingdom of God citizen. The way we advance the kingdom of God is by being the unique kingdom of God in contrast to the kingdom of the world. Um, <laughs> I just feel like I heard you say kingdom of God like a hundred times. You're you're not wrong. I did say it a hundred times because Gregory A. Boyd has <laughs> written it a hundred times. Okay. <laughs> so there's a few things to get out here. First of all, um, Howard Watson Williman, please reevaluate your your colonialist metaphor. It's not good. <laughs> um, so that's a yeah, thing to think about. It's bad even. It's bad even is right. Uh, again, this is another way of saying Christians ought to be to be moral actors and not political actors. Um, you should be involved in this one type of kingdom, not this other. But but what what does this mean politically? I have no idea. I have no idea, and it it kills me because um, <laughs> I just don't know what any of that actually – what does it concretely mean to participate in the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of the world? Does that mean that you should move into a house with a bunch of other people and kind of like do the new monastic thing? Does it mean that you should just like be really kind to people and open the doors for them? Does it mean that you should just give money to homeless people when you see them on the sidewalk? Like I, I guess I could read so much stuff into this. It is politically irrelevant. It's impotent. It's something that makes me feel like I'm saying something radical, deep, and meaningful, but it's not doing a goddamn thing, and I don't like it, Dean. <laughs> Yeah, me neither. I, I'm not going to try to make you like it, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> it reminds me, I, I had this conversation with a Hauerwas-type guy not too long ago, last, last summer, I guess. Um, and we were talking about socialism, and this person was asking me why I'm not into the, the Hauerwas model, I guess. And I was saying, well, you know, if, like, if everyone en masse decided to just, like, share all their possessions in common or whatever, like, there'd be some production questions that maybe Marxism could help or whatever. But at the end of the day, like, that's not going to happen. It's not going to take down the kingdoms of the world. And I was like, I don't think that Hauerwas can stop, like, climate change or something, right? Like, I don't think Hauerwas can stop, uh, like, systemic white supremacy or, like, the cultures of violence that are that they're trying to resist by advocating for this kind of resident alien um, situation. And I think for me, that's just what it comes down to that, like, <laughs> there are so many Christians who have found that, like, to be a Christian means actually to get your hands dirty. Yeah. Even to, like, find a way of supporting a, a project that might not even be explicitly Christian, right? Like, the Christians for Socialism movement in Chile is still, I think, a, a classic example for me where all these Christians were like, well, you know, we don't know what to think about, like, Allende and Marxism and all that kind of stuff, but we're going to try. Like, we're going to try to figure it out, and we're going to organize some some workers and some peasants, and we're going to see if we can build a society together as Christians with these other people. And I think, you know, the fact that even Boyd here talks about how, like, the true church is the one that retreats or the one that is, you know, the resident alien behind enemy lines or something. Yeah. Like... I don't know. <laughs> I think the the conversation about true church is one that just forestalls any imagination of how other Christians have found it politically meaningful to engage the world on behalf of all the people that Jesus says that he cares about, right? Like 
the the widow and the poor and the people who are suffering and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know. Again, it's just like it's bad rhetoric because it convinces you that you've said something. But like you said, Matt, it, it doesn't say anything. Yeah. It is like a uh, it, it, it reminds me a lot of like a, a progressive Benedict option or something. <laughs> you're not doing anything, <laughs> but you're going to hang out together, I guess. Um, all right. Well, I think that's probably a good place to kind of cap that conversation off. Um, it, I, you know, if you yourself are maybe more of a progressive evangelical and not a, a Marxist, and you just listen to us because you hate us or whatever. I mean, fine. I guess the point is that we're not mad at you. We're not trying to like own you online because we think that you suck or whatever. I guess what we're trying to do is just kind of stage an intervention that this way of thinking about the world has its ups and downs, that there's some things that are good about it. Um, like, you know, that that following Jesus really does mean rejecting the, the like evangelical right. I absolutely believe that 100%. And I think that we're in agreement there. But I think that what this lacks is a careful analysis of culture and of political economy that um, makes it politically just unviable as a way of thinking about the world. And while I don't, I don't expect to win over Stanley Hauerwas or Brian Zond, I, I think that like, you know, even if you don't want to be a Marxist, fine, but I think that you could probably kind of see how um, maybe a more systematic and structured way to understand political economy and how it plays into the creation of morality um, and the creation of the world's problems would probably help you out. So, you know, if I can't persuade you to be, become a socialist or whatever, fine, but I hope this intervention might help like more progressive evangelicals, you know, think through some of these assumptions that are in their uh, rhetoric. Yeah, and at the very least, to think through how the the radical rhetoric leaves certain things in place that maybe we shouldn't. Uh, or like Jim Wallace, uh, the moral language is cool. Um, it's fine. Like we maybe we should have a, a kind of morally charged invitation to politics sometimes. Uh, but if that moral language ends up preserving a, a political economy that's based on immorality, then, you know, we have to think a little harder. So one thing that Marxists will say is a lot of progressive liberals uh, rightly recognize that, like, society is wounded in a really deep way. But what they try to do is cover that wound with, like, a small bandage. Right. And uh, that isn't going to do it, right? Like, you need to deal with the wound entirely or else you're going to have to keep on finding (laughs) more and more band-aids. So I think, yeah, I mean... Like you said, even if you're not a socialist, like at the very, very least, you have to start asking these questions of like, from where do all these problems derive? And uh, what is a a significant and actually meaningful material response to them? All right, we did it. We got all of the questions answered. Um, Cool. Well, we'll be back next week with some more stuff on evangelicalism. Um, It still remains to be seen exactly what that will be, but we'll figure it out this week. (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. Uh, If you like what you heard, and we know you probably did, um, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Magnificast. You can also leave us an iTunes review. Just go to iTunes, search the Magnificast, leave us a review, and we'll be forever thankful to you. yeah, cool. The intro music is by Mario Armstrong. The outro music is by The Illogical Spoon. And, uh, well, this is a good one. I liked what we did here. Um, but we'll see you next week with more of that good, that good, good stuff. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up.
keep your hoods up and you stay up late in Jackson. You keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still.